Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew 5. We've talked about it many times before, but we live in a day where your attention is a commodity. Um, Even while we go to God's Word now, there can be any number of things that vie for your attention in your own mind or sitting in your pocket as it buzzes, hopefully doesn't ding, or even worse, ring. Um, Now's a really good time to silence because after said that, it might just happen to you. I don't know. Um, but there's always something trying to grab our attention, whether it's devices, whether it's signs, uh, noises, uh, visually, audibly, tangibly. There's things like, hey, pay attention here, pay attention here. And if we kind of narrow our focus from just attention and the commodity of that to a specific avenue and start talking about the volume of advertisements that we receive, it really is staggering. I, did a little research to try to wrap my mind around, like, how many advertisements do we see? Uh, how many advertisements do we hear? Because uh, we can hear them, we can see them, uh, we can uh, drive down the road and watch a billboard, or we can be scrolling on our phone or on a computer and see them. And uh, really, it's hard to grasp statistics. Uh, one that did jump out to me, just as one example that kind of takes us further from attention is a commodity to advertising is everywhere. If we just take a subset of advertising and we just talk about digital advertising, not the billboards, not the sound bites, not the mailers that fill your mailbox all the time, um, but we just talk about the digital advertisements that are out there, the estimate is that Digital advertising is a $627 billion industry this year. Just constantly people saying, you need this. You want this. Your life won't be complete or satisfying without it. And if you had this, you would be happy. This would bring you joy. And uh, most, if not all of us, know what it's like where you bought that pitch and you thought, you know what, that would be good. That would be helpful. And then we learn, well, what buyer's remorse looks like and find out that's a piece of trash. That really is not helpful at all. It didn't live up to the hype or it didn't meet needs the way that I thought it would. And uh, it broke. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, because in a moment we thought, you know what, this, this should be good. As we come to the text of Scripture this morning, Jesus points to a problem. He points to a command that was given in the Old Testament that points to a sin issue. And then Jesus, as he does in each of these commands in the Sermon on the Mount, takes the command itself and he elevates the requirements of it, reminding us that when it comes to sin, specifically targeted here as lust and adultery, but I think we can also say broadly, any sin says, hey, your life would be better if. Sin always overpromises and under-delivers. Sin always says life would be good if, and yet in the end brings about death and destruction. I would remind you again as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is saying if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, or we might even personalize it for Jesus and say if you want to be a part of his kingdom, Here's what a kingdom dweller lives like. Here's the people that are blessed in God's kingdom through the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to then more recently saying that um, if we are going to be a follower of God's kingdom, we've got to understand the law rightly. And 
Jesus, right out of the gate, so that we don't get confused, says, hey, don't think that I'm tearing the law down and destroying it. I'm actually here to fulfill the law, to give meaning to the law, to demonstrate what it looks like to live perfectly before the law, as he also then, as the Messiah, meets every prophecy given to say, here is the Deliverer. Last week, and now again this week, we've started into a unique section in the Sermon on the Mount, where once again, Jesus is going to go through six commands from the Old Testament law and say, here's what the law says. You've heard that it has been said, or it has been said. And then having given the command or the law itself, he explains and interprets it and heightens even the standard of it. Last week, we looked at the Mosaic prohibition in verse 21, thou shalt not kill This idea of, hey, this idea of murder certainly is wrong. This external action is uh, detestable and wrong and worthy of judgment. But having looked at the Mosaic prohibition, we then consider Jesus' instruction in verses 22 to 26, where rather than just focusing on an external action, he focuses on internal attitude of our heart. Say, you know, if you even have despised your brother, if you've had this anger, if you've said these words, you are guilty as well. And pointing to the need, once again, that God deeply values our relationships with one another. Today, we dive into a new command and Jesus' instruction on that one as well. But before we do, I want to give you a reminder I gave you last week as well. As we work through these commands, it's very important we keep two things in mind. I'm very tempted at this point to give you a quiz, see if you're staying with me, but we won't do that. First, I would remind you as we work through these commands that they give us a priority to strive for. To go, this needs to inform how I think and the way that I seek to live. It's not enough, as we saw last week, to just go, well, yeah, I won't murder. I mean, that's wrong. I mean, there's major consequences for that. But to go, Jesus also said that if I have this anger, if I speak these ways, if I have this proud disdain for someone else, then I'm wrong as well. And so uh, by God's grace for his glory, it's a priority I need to live for as I view other people, not to view myself so highly and treat others with such proud arrogance. So number one, it's a priority to live for. But number two, and very importantly, each of these laws points to the necessity of a savior. There is no amount of restriction and self-discipline that is going to enable the people in this room or anybody to successfully say, I've kept all of those laws perfectly. I mean, even if we look at the one last week with this idea of proud disdain and unjustifiable anger, many of us realize like, yeah... There is too much, too, still too much pride in how I view someone else. Man, God, you got to keep working on my heart because that's a problem. You see, Jesus is taking the laws and he's elevating them justifiably, legitimately, so that we realize I need rescue. Chapter 5, verse 20, our righteousness is never going to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Our righteousness, our best efforts to meet God's standard are never going to meet what Jesus says here. So we need a Savior. Jesus is going to conclude this section, fast forward again, Matthew 5, verse 48, that what do we need to be in order to be with God? We need to be therefore perfect, even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. 
And so as we work through this text this morning, we want to balance this idea of, I have an incredible responsibility before God to live as he tells me to. But I also have a wonderful opportunity to be rescued by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. A verse that ties those two together well in the practice is Romans chapter 8, verse 13, that reminds us by the work of the Spirit, we seek to put to death the flesh. Like We do have a responsibility, but it is only by the work of the Spirit alone. That said, we want to dive into the text this morning by beginning to look at the law's prohibition in verse 27. And I would have you note once more that just as last week, Jesus points to the law and in doing so points to an external action before coming around and noting that it is driven by an internal attitude or an internal thought. I find it interesting that Jesus used these two, by the way, right out of the gate, from anger last week to lust this week, realizing the world that we live in. Aren't Jesus' words very fitting for us, for the day we live in a world that struggles greatly with anger and also struggles deeply with lust? So we look at the prohibition. Jesus begins with the same formula in verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said of old time. In other words, he's reminding them, the law that I put in front of you has a well-known lengthy history. You've heard it repeated often. It has lasted for generations. It bears authority in their lives. Jesus' teaching isn't new when he says those words, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is forbidden. It's against God's law. It's the seventh of the Ten Commandments. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, to say, here's what God told us in making this covenant at Mount Sinai. Here's the laws that God gave uh, down to us that this is absolutely wrong in sin. By the way, similar to last week, I find it instructive and helpful to realize that the issue of anger last week devalues someone created in God's image. And the type of sin issue that uh, Jesus is pointing to here as well devalues someone created in God's image. To realize, again, if we go back to those early chapters of Genesis, just like we did last week, God creates man and then subsequently woman. He does so in his own image, saying, here is someone that has value made in God's image, having a capacity to decide between right and wrong, having a conscience to help them in the decision between right and wrong, and then having a soul that matters for eternity as to where it goes. And in last week's command, he points to the reality of eternity based on what we do with anger. And in this week's command, he points to eternity, dealing with how, uh, pointing to how we deal with this issue of lust and adultery as well. But you know, as God creates man in his own image in Genesis 1, where does he go in Genesis chapter 2? He points to marriage and says, okay, man and woman have been created. Creation is now very good. And he institutes the, this relationship of marriage saying, even there in Genesis chapter 2, here is the definition of marriage man and woman. Here are the boundaries of marriage as they cleave from a from mother and father and become one flesh. To realize this is something that God created as a unique, very special relationship that the world we live in, the world of Jesus' day here, doesn't get to redefine the parameters and go, well, actually adultery is okay, or lust is okay, or even in our day to go, marriage is outdated. It's unneeded. It's limiting. 
and so many other messages that we hear today. I think it's worth mentioning as we look at a negative command just to remind us that what God declared and how marriage is to function is a very good thing, a very right relationship. It is to be exclusively pure, but it is also to be marked by unselfish, unique intimacy. That Jesus here reminds the law says there are boundaries, there are violations. As we come to the text this morning here, I wonder what our marriages communicate to the world around us to go, you know what? The way God has designed it is good. His commands, his limitations here are good. I wonder what our mindsets are, whether married or single, to go, do we agree with what God did in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and even the subsequent teaching of Scripture to go, this is a good thing, so that we can look at the laws and the instructions that follow and view them rightly. Having considered briefly the law's prohibition, thou shalt not commit adultery, that seventh commandment, let's look at Jesus' instruction in verses 28 to 30. Jesus says once again, but I say unto you, not here to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And yet as he does so, Jesus speaks authoritatively once more, elevating the standard of even the law. As we consider Jesus' instruction, look at verse, the beginning of verse 28 with me, and we'll see first that Jesus' instruction is focused on a sinful heart. Jesus' instruction is focused on a sinful heart. And again, I'll, just, I'll remind you before we get into the details that really every sin that any of us commit begins first with a battle in our hearts and our minds. You know, I, I begin to think that this would be good, and I want, or I will. And so Jesus here, as he gives his instruction, focuses on that reality of a sinful heart. He says that whosoever looketh, and the idea of look is not simply, hey, I noticed, but it is a present tense, is looking. There's this intentional, ongoing look on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You know, in the culture of Jesus' day, adultery was predominantly viewed as a theft issue, taking something that wasn't one's own. And yet Jesus here is saying, I'm going to point to an even deeper issue. This isn't like simply stealing. A heart that has a desire to use someone else for their own pleasure is wrong as well. Similar to the idea of covetousness, that final commandment later on to say, you know what, when, when we see something that someone else has and we want it, it's just there in our heart. Not even that we took it, but we just wanted it in covetousness. It's like that's wrong as well. That violates God's law, God's standard. We could say it this way, what was forbidden, punishable, and able to be known in adultery, Jesus says is actually driven by something that is unknowable, and we might also say often, uh, often excused. Sin is always driven by our selfish desire. In fact, text has been on my mind a lot this past week uh, as I've been thinking about our text for this morning is the familiar one in James 1, right? Uh, when we're tempted for any kind of sin, not just lust or adultery here, but when we're tempted for any kind of sin, where does that come from? It says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. So just understand this foundationally when it comes to God. God himself in who he is can't be tempted. Furthermore, God doesn't ever tempt anybody else. That never, ever, ever comes from God. Okay? 
But then we learn this in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. He says, when we get off track is when we feed these selfish desires in our hearts and they move to sin. And as a result, that sin always, 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 always brings about destruction. We don't believe that deeply enough. We really don't. We would be a little more careful in the words that we use and their kindness and their truthfulness if we were immediately seeing sin always destroys. We'd be a little more careful with the things that we look at as we consider the text in front of us this morning to go, if I go there, it always, always, always brings destruction. And we could keep going down a sin list of any number of issues. Coming out of that teaching in James 1, right? What is the next verse that James gives us? Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted of any man. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Lust conceives, brings forth sin, sin was finished, brings forth death. What's the next verse? It's verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't get this wrong. Don't get confused about this. That doesn't come from God. It comes from you. And when you do, it always brings forth death. Don't get that mixed up. And then what does the next verse say? We were reminded of this Wednesday night. Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above. You know what God gives you? He doesn't give you temptation. You know what God gives you? God gives you every good and perfect gift you've ever had. That comes from him, period. So if we apply that thinking about sin and what God does give from James 1, we don't get it confused. If we stay within Jesus' teaching here, reminding us of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and highlighting the devastating nature of lust, we would say, God, I'm going to believe you. God, that doesn't come from you. God, I'm not going to buy the lie that Satan started all the way back in the garden that you're somehow withholding good from me. God, I'm going to stay within the boundaries that you've laid out. God, I'm going to need your grace to change the way that I think and the way that I live to rescue me from the sinfulness of my own heart. God doesn't withhold good. Every good thing we have comes from God. Think about it this way in light of another familiar text. I'm going to give you several this morning. Think of it in light of Galatians chapter 6, right? Where in Galatians 6, he's like, be not deceived. Don't get this one mixed up either. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall we also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we have the flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we have the Spirit reap life everlasting. To go, just understand how God operates, what he blesses, how he rewards. Jesus here focuses on a sinful heart and says, you know, if you're a man and even if you look at a woman to make her an object of your selfish desire, your lust, you've committed adultery. It's on par with the grievous command given in the Ten Commandments. For all of us here, just a reminder, sin begins in our minds. I found myself running again to different passages. You know, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're casting down imaginations and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. We're bringing into captivity every imagination, to go, I, I got to grab a hold of my thoughts. I got to think rightly. Or to think of Proverbs chapter 4, the familiar words in verse 23, to go, I'm going to keep my heart with all diligence. I got to guard what I desire on the inside. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. 
Or what we read in Matthew chapter 10, it'll be a little while before we get there, where Jesus is a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. But an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth evil things. And then the next verse ends by saying, uh, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. To go, you know what, or rather to, to say, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh is verse 35 there in Matthew 10. Sin always begins with our thoughts, with our minds. It's why there's a repeated admonition that maybe because of language we miss, but often in the New Testament epistles we're told, be sober, be sober. And we view that as like, be alert, and alertness is part of that. But you look at the word behind that idea of sobriety, it means be self-disciplined, be self-controlled, do that in your mind, stay in the right state of mind. It's why Romans 12 tells us that we are to be being renewed in the spirit of our mind. God, I need you to change how I think so that I change how I live. It's why, as we talked about just recently on Wednesday nights in Philippians 4, we're told, here's what you need to think on. Don't think on your selfishness. Don't think of uh, things that are wrong, but instead think of what is true and honest and just and of good report and lovely and each of the uh, qualities that are listed there. Almost goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We live in a day where the world wants you to selfishly desire all kinds of things. To covet, to be discontent, and certainly to lust. There's a need for every believer to fight those temptations, to guard our heart, to be careful where we go. We, we live in a day where pornography, the entertainment industry, uh, mobile devices... Social media, printed media, and we could keep going on and on. It's going, you need this. This will make life good for you. And Jesus is saying, this is wrong. This is sin. And again, we would do well, both guys and girls. This isn't simply a male problem, as it's often portrayed to be. We can go through Scripture. We won't this morning, but you can go through Scripture and see characters played out like in Proverbs 6 and 7 to realize this is a problem for both genders where we face a need to recognize the destructive nature of lust and sin and heed the wisdom of Jesus' words. So we run to Jesus, first for the gospel, and then secondly for grace. So we look at Jesus' instruction as focused on a sinful heart, number one. Number two, it's emphasized by a hypothetical hyperbole. It is emphasized by a hypothetical hyperbole when you come to verses 29 and 30. It probably even caught you as we were going through Scripture reading that what Jesus does is shocking here, is it not? And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee. I mean, as he continues on, this is not the only time Jesus does this, by the way. There's another text in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus does this in a slightly different context there. But Jesus points to that, whether you're in Mark 9 or here, is to two of our members or two of our body instruments, if you will, that are often used for all different kinds of sin. And he's like, you know, if it's going to be this way, that this leads you down the course to sin, then deal with it. Take incredibly aggressive action to deal with it. You're like, well, how do I rightly understand that? Again, I've titled it for us a hypothetical hyperbole, so I think you understand where we're going. But let's look at it in the text. Notice first how Jesus speaks conditionally. Notice first how Jesus speaks conditionally. He raises the question as to whether our eyes and hands are what offend us. That word offend means to ensnare or to trap. 
to capture severely. Uh, there's a word picture that's used in secular usage. It's not a, a biblical usage, but I think the illustration fits the word in biblical usage. That word to offend in secular usage is used for the st- uh, stick that holds a trap up. If you think about the idea of propping maybe a box up uh, with a stick under it, and hey, I'm going to let that thing fall, it means now you're trapped, you're ensnared. He's like, so if it is your eye or your hand that entraps you, then you better deal with your eye and your hand. You know, very realistically, sin does seek to ensnare us, right? Romans chapter 7, Paul makes that very clear. The good that I don't want to do, I don't. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the bad that I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to set me free? He paints the picture that sin like holds us prisoner. And even when we look at the issue in the text today, there's much being written today to remind us of the addictive behavior or the addictive tendencies of the sins listed here. But Jesus says, you know what? If it's your hand or it's your eye that causes you to be trapped, then you better stop. But I want you to notice that first word. I believe it's very important, or technically the second word. Just that little word, if. In essence, Jesus speaks conditionally, hypothetically saying, if this condition is true, and let's assume for the sake of the argument that it is, then here's what you should do. But what did Jesus just tell us in the previous verse is the real cause? It starts in our heart. Long before it ever turns into an action, it begins with a thought. It's like you can have committed the sin without having done anything externally because it is there in your heart. You see, in order to stop sin, in order for it to prevent it to be ensnaring, it is not simply a battle that's won by going, well, you know what, hands, eyes, I don't need those. Life wouldn't be great without them. Actually, we need our hearts changed. Our, can external restraints be helpful and good? Yes. But I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, okay, let's, let's jump all the way over here. You know what? If you think that it's your eyes, you think that it's your hands that are offending you, that are causing you to sin, then deal with them. But he has just told us that sin can occur even in our own hearts. believe that's the biblical case that we need to understand, but I also think it's worth reminding us historically we can look at all kinds of people, both individuals and people in denominations who are like, you know what, the the, the physical world is evil, so let's withdraw as much as possible from the physical world and we'll deal with sin. We'll put people in buildings completely isolated from others. We'll send individuals so they are absolutely, completely alone. We'll deny them even an opportunity for marriage, which God called good. And somehow that's going to solve someone's sin issue. No. External restraints alone are never enough to change our heart. And even for a believer here today who says, you know what, I'm a conscience before God. I want to please God and I want to do what's right. So I'm going to set up these boundaries. Those are good. But again, I would remind us, if the law could save, Jesus would never have come. It's good for us to be reminded, I've got to win the battle in my heart. God, I need you to be renewing my mind. God, I need you to be changing my heart. God, I need you to be using your word. God, I need you to be giving me grace. Because God, I need rescue from a heart that at times is very sinful and wrong. And I think we touched it briefly in our Sunday school class this morning, but I think of the wisdom of Galatians, right? Having begun in the Spirit, Galatians 3 verse 3, are you, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? 
The answer is no. You don't get perfection by self-restraint. We walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And amazingly enough, the lusts of the flesh that get started are very much in line with what we're considering here in Matthew chapter 5. So we look at the hypothetical hyperbole we said first, Jesus speaks conditionally, but secondly, he speaks consequentially. He speaks consequentially. Why, why should you take action? Why should you deal with this? Why should you recognize the gravity of sin? For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Similar to last week with anger. Now Jesus takes the sin of lust and reminds us of the gravity of its consequences. The judgment that is, is worth, that, the judgment that it deserves. You know, when, the, when uh, sexual sin is habitual and becomes someone's identity, it points to the reality we are not converted. Revelation 21 verse 8 makes that clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 makes that clear. But the wonderful thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is it points to the fact that we have rescue and salvation in Jesus Christ. Because it goes through some of these kinds of sin issues, and then what's the turn in 1 Corinthians 6? you got to love this. He says, but such were some of you, but you are washed, you are clean. Life has been changed because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Habitual sin doesn't need to be the practice of a believer any longer because the identity has been changed. That's why we run to the gospel first and to Jesus for rescue, but then secondly, we fight sin presently, Colossians 3, 5, mortifying the deeds of the flesh, Ephesians chapter 5, walking in love and staying away from these sins. I don't know where each of you find yourself this morning, but again, we live in a world that is bombarded with this kind of sin. If you're a Christian and you find yourself there, can I just remind you that Jesus stands ready to forgive There's a need to repent and say, I'm going to change my mind about this. I'm going to change my life about this. I'm going to confess my sin to God because he is faithful and just to forgive me, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Forget what it was recently. I was having a conversation. Don't remember the details, but I just remember my mind vividly going to the picture of the prodigal son. Like, you do have a God who's that father going, just come back. Just come back. You don't have to be enslaved or ensnared. Just come back, confess, and seek forgiveness from God. He stands, he stands ready to receive, faithful and just to forgive. Encourage every one of us to fight temptation, to recognize that God is faithful. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And in the midst of that side of the conversation, I'll say once more to also realize that God's design is good, right? There's been a time where people are like, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, and people don't realize, you know what? God, what God has said and the way God has designed things are, is good. Now again, we give you two thoughts at the beginning of last week and the beginning of this week. Hopefully you know them by now. A priority to live for and the necessity of rescue, Right? So if we say there's a priority to live for, one of the thoughts we need to walk away from today, whether it's the sin listed here or any sin, is that external restraints do have some benefit. They're never enough. 
but they do have some benefit. I, I think of the words of Job when it comes to the issue listed here, Job 31.1, where he said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why, therefore, should I think upon a maid? Job's like, you know what? I made this commitment. I, I've set some boundaries in place. I found myself thinking to a quote my youth pastor used to also give, and I was trying to find its source. I guess it's from a poem, um, but it talks, the poem speaks about it is always better to build a fence at the top of a cliff than to run an ambulance at the bottom. To go, you know what? Because I may have a temptation to sin in any number of ways, there are times where I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to hedge myself in. I'm going to make sure that I stay away from that because I want to fight sin so that I can be right with God, but God, I need his grace. And so perhaps for some, there's a need to go, you know what? I just need to install a piece of software. All right, you know what? I've come to the place where I shouldn't have this phone or I shouldn't have internet or I shouldn't have TV. Or maybe I need to talk to somebody just to pursue counseling or accountability, whether that is a mentor, whether that's a pastor, whether that's a friend. Say, I want to take very seriously Jesus' words to make it hard for myself to sin while also recognizing my need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I leave you with three thoughts for battling sin, this sin and others. Foundationally, number one, it reminds you the answer is always the gospel. The answer is always salvation by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is why 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. To go, I need, we need rescue through the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. But secondly, the answer is not always, not only just always the gospel. The answer is always found in God's grace. God, I'm going to continue in my need of you. God, I'm going to continue to need your grace. Again, I think of Romans 7 along those lines. Is Paul, as an apostle, is looking at life going, I don't want to do the good that I want to do, and I end up doing the bad that I don't want to do. Who delivers me? And he goes back to Jesus. It goes back to the victory that is achieved through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews chapter 8, make the same point as well. And then third, one that maybe we might be sound cliche. In fact, I think many, if not all of you, know the memory verse that would back it. But I wonder if we practice it. The answer is not only the gospel, it is not only God's grace. The answer is God's word. Psalm 119, right? 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heither to according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. So we say, and we go, okay, yeah, the answer is God's word. Well, I wonder, are you in it personally? Going, you know what? I need to study God's word on some specific issues that I'm dealing with. Maybe it's my words. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's unkindness. Maybe it's anger, as we talked about last week. We could go on and on. But I'm going to be in God's word because God said that it is his word that I need to take heed to. It is his word that I need to hide in my heart. So I'm just going to study. I'm going to be in it personally. I don't remember which message it was recently. I say recently. It's been the last six months. We talked about also then not just like reading it, but memorizing it go, hey, here's what I'm dealing with, so let me find scripture that deals with that and memorize it. 
to go, you know what, in light of the text this morning, maybe I need to memorize those opening verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Maybe to remind myself of what God's good design is. There are verses I need to memorize in 1 Corinthians 7 or Proverbs chapter 5. To go, you know what, God's word is the answer. Jesus is walking people through saying, you need to be right. You need to meet God's standard. You need to do it when it comes to murder. And you need to do it when it deals with anger. You need to meet God's standard when it comes to adultery. And you need to meet God's standard even when it comes to lust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction from Jesus pointing to our heart need of you. Lord, to realize that you alone can change us. You alone can rescue us from our sinfulness. And Lord, if there'd be any here today who aren't saved, that you would make that very clear to them by your word through your spirit and that they would turn to Jesus Christ, death on the cross and resurrection for salvation, for life change. Lord, for believers that are here, or perhaps some have been convicted of sin, I pray that by your grace you would point to them your mercy, that they would return to you, confessing sin, making it right. Or for all of us, we stand in need of your grace to help us to walk with you, to please you, to be conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, we face an enemy that we know wants to destroy us with any number of kinds of sin. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word by your Spirit to convict us, that you would give us grace to battle temptation so that we are pleasing to you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.